Welcome to the sixth episode of the Coot Sheet Podcast. The Roundtable is a monthly podcast in, uh, where uh, myself, Jonathan Strahan, James Bradley, and Ian Mond, occasionally special guests, discuss a new, new recently released science fiction or fantasy novel. Unlike some of the other discussions that we have over in the Coot Street School of Podcasts, School of Podcasts, um, there are spoilers here. This week we're going to discuss Madeline Ashby's fourth novel, Company Town. First of all, so welcome, James. Hello, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Ian. Uh, welcome for having me. Well, having you know, look, it's, 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 it's ours. We've got to start some way. And can I say that was a red hot mess yeah. at the beginning? But now, yeah, well, well, we'll have to overcome it by being witty and and informed. Uh, you're asking for a lot from me today. <laughs> so, so James is recovering from a cold, and I think I'm in the middle. I'm at the start of the cycle. So, yeah, but I'll do my best to be witty. To be witty. Anyway. Ah, uh, well. Yeah. Even though I guess if I was a writer and someone was discussing my book, I don't know that I'd want them to be terribly witty. I think I'd want them to be mindlessly praiseworthy. Praiseworthy. That's no, the best book ever. So, have you got? Let, let's start. I just finished reading Madeline Ashby's Company Town yesterday. What about you guys? Ian, when did you finish? Uh, a week and a half ago, I think, from memory, yeah. And James, it's very fresh in your memory. Yeah, I know you're only asking this question because of that. Um, no, I finished about 10 minutes ago. Thanks, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, this to me is the great gift, at least for me, of the podcast we're doing. And that is, I probably would have put off meaning to read Company Town for six more months before deciding I didn't have time to read it. So I'm glad that I didn't. I'm glad I read the book. But um, it's nice to have that little bit of nudge to make sure that I actually do read it. Let me ask you both a question, maybe starting with James. What of Madeline's have you read in the past? How familiar with her work are you? Uh, I've not read much of the short stuff. I've read both the... Um both the robot novels, uh, ID and um, the, uh, the end, okay. both of which I liked very much, uh, particularly the first one I thought was really terrific. Yeah. Um, but I, I, there's a lot of short fiction as well, and I have to confess I haven't read, uh, I'm not sure I've read any of it, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. And what about you, Ian? How familiar are you with this, Madeline's work? This is my first exposure to her work. I've not read any short fiction. I've not read the previous works. And I don't know why. Again, it's just another one, another author just slipped through the cracks yeah. in my life. Well, I mean, look, I've read, pro well, I had, I was aware of VN and ID, and I think the third of the Machine Dynasty books is just out, or what came out, Rev. Um, oh, was it out? Yeah, I think so, yes. Yes, according to the Angry Robot website, it came out in April. Oh, I didn't know that. I'll have to read it, terrific. And then, I mean, I'd come across some of Madeline's short fiction, and that was really about it. You know, I'd, I'd met her a couple of times. I read a story she did for, maybe it was one of the MIT anthologies. Uh, no, there's a thing called An Aura of Familiarity, Visions from the Coming of an Age Network, the Age of Network Matter, I think. And she wrote a really interesting story for that. And then I had her write a story for me for Meeting Infinity. And... I've really, you know, I've really enjoyed the short fiction. It's been really smart and savvy and informed. Uh, I gotta say, I was on, unsurprised to go off and sort of read about her, you know, read her biography and see that, you know, she had, she works as a futurist. She has a master's degree in anime. Um, lives in, in Toronto. 
where, you know, she sort of writes and does this sort of thing, writes for Tor and boing, boing, and she's written these four books. And this book has a slightly odd past in that I think it was originally scheduled to come out last year from Angry Robot. And then when Angry Robot had a few little issues, it got pulled and tweaked around and then published by Tor and came out back in, I think, March. I guess before we move into the spoiler part of the discussion, which we will, uh, and before I give the brief overview of the book, for those people who've not listened to the Cooch Street Roundtable before, we will get into details of the ending of the book and what happens and all that sort of thing and how we feel about it. So pretty shortly it would be a good moment to check out and then go and read Company Town if you're going to. Maybe pick up Madeline's anthology of James Bond stories that she edited along the way, then come back later. Uh, she, wait, 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 wait. Rewind. She's edited a uh, edited an anthology in, of James Bond stories. She did that, last it? year. Uh, apparently, oh, okay. apparently James Bond has fallen out of copyright in um, Canada. So, okay. So she edited an anthology of new James Bond stories, with stories like by people like I don't know uh, Jeff Ford, uh, Carl Schroeder, um, Charlie Stross, those kind of people. That's interesting. It's amazing how much it's amazing how much is published because I consider myself to be in the loop and I had no idea that thing existed. But there, there you go. go. There you go. And it looks really good. Yeah. yeah. Came out from Shizu, okay. who you would have heard of. They published. Yeah, yeah of course, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, yeah. so the, the quick normal thing around this point in the in, in the podcast as we get started is to get a, just a quick feeling of how you felt about the book at the end of it, whether you liked it, whether you'd recommend it to one of our listeners to go off, have a read, and come back so they can listen to the spoiler part of the podcast. Ian, how do you feel about it? Uh, I think it's a book of two I'd say two halves or two thirds. You know, I really, really enjoyed. It's immensely readable. I really, really enjoyed the first two thirds. The last third, not so much. But I would recommend it anyway. James? Yeah, i probably... I'd probably say something similar. I think that the first two-thirds, three-quarters are really good. Um, I think it then... Uh, look, I'd, I think it becomes less good. Uh, look, I think it finds its way back at the end. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I, th- those reservations are my reservations about lots of these books, though, that are built around kind of essentially kind of thriller plots, you know, is that... I, I tend to find them a lot less interesting as you get to the resolution. Um, so that's partly just about my tastes, I think. But I, I'm not clear that the last, I guess, the last third or the last quarter works all that well, which is a, which is a pity. But it's more, it, 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 it just doesn't seem to quite come off. But the first two thirds are fantastic. Mm. And like, I've got to say, I would sort of echo that. I, I think Madeline is really a really fascinating thinker about things. I think she's really. Uh, interesting to read. I think she packs her books full of really, really fascinating things. The characters are great. I love the protagonist in this book quite a lot. I think she's great. Um, I probably would agree that up until about the third part, I think it's 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 really rocking. It's the kind of book you can see as being an incredible film, uh, or at least it's an incredible film in your mind, at least. And then it hits this turning point set of connections to the back end of the story where everything concludes. And I'm not totally sold that those connections work. That said, I still think it's worth reading, and I'm still very happy that I read it. So, um, yeah. 
Yeah, I, so I'd, I'd say at the end, I, I would certainly recommend it to other people. I liked it a lot. Okay. So there you go. That was that, this. This is sort of like the, like like the bell ringing. Spoilers on from here. We can say any mad thing we want. Typically, because we don't have anything else to put into this space, this is the point where I read the cover blurb of the book. I find this bit a bit dull, but we'll give it a go. And then, it's all right, Jonathan, you pull it off. You pull it off magnificently. You've got a, a way of saying it of a reading a blurb. <laughs> They're never short. <laughs> okay, here we go. Company Town by Madeline Ashby. New Arcadia is a city-sized oil rig off the coast of the Canadian Maritimes, now owned by one very wealthy, powerful Byzantine family, Lynch Limited. Hua is the first. Pe- this is one of the few people in her community, which constitutes the whole rig, to forego bioengineered enhancements. As such, she's the last truly organic person left on the rig, making her doubly an outsider, as well as the neglected daughter and bodyguard extraordinaire. Still, her expertise in the arts of self-defense and her record as a fighter mean that her services are in high demand. When the youngest Lynch needs training and protection, the family turns to Hua, but can even she protect against increasingly intense death threats seemingly coming from another timeline? Meanwhile, a series of interconnected murders threatens the city's stability and heightens the unease of a rig turning over. All signs point to a nearly invisible serial killer, but all of the murders seem to lead right back to Hua's front door. Company town has never been the safest place to be, but now the danger is personal. That's how they describe the book. That's pretty comprehensive. It is, it is. A bit too comprehensive. Well, I was going to say, as, as I read it, because I hadn't read it before, it's a bit like one of those scary kind of movie trailers you watch where, you know, for a really great movie, it used to be you'd get a 30-second 30, 30 trailer, and for the not particularly good movie, you'd get the two-and-a-half-minute trailer that had all the highlights in there. Yeah. What, what's going on with blurbs, Jonathan? I'm blaming you. Why? I don't what's write happening them. Here? No, well, but somehow you're involved. I'm certain of this. Um, no, I'm kidding. The, what is going on? I mean, James, you've had a novel published recently. What control did you have over the what was written on the back? Uh, the authors usually have quite a lot of control. Um, okay. All right. I just don't understand why an author would... That gives a lot away. I don't understand why you'd want to give that much away of the novel. They're, they're incredibly difficult things to put together. I mean, because you need you need to make the book sound interesting without giving too much away, and you need to you know they need they need to be kind of engaging, and it, it, it's actually they're very di- I mean they're very difficult things to put together. I mean, some books are easier than others, I have to say, um, but you know, I think for most books they're probably difficult. Do you think maybe that, yeah, that, can, yeah, that right. do you think maybe that blurb reflects a slight lack of confidence in the ability of the reader to follow the book? Yeah, a slight lack of confidence in the world building uh, as a whole, which there shouldn't be because the world building is fantastic. Not, not maybe not the plot threads, but just generally the the the, the setting. Um. Well, yeah. But then, but then, I'm not blaming just this book. I'm fine. I actively now do not read back, and I know this. I'm not the only person. I hear this yeah. a lot. People just actively do not read back cover blurbs or bad, bad, well, that's not that's not the term for it, or whatever it is, um, because of just they're written now like like you said, like trailers where all the main highlights are now in the blurb. Oh, look. <clears throat> you know, the first fit. I mean, I'm reading now um, Noah Hawley's uh, latest. Uh, well, you know, the guy who wrote Tafargo. And um, he the blurb for his book also gives away essentially the first half of the book. 
So, I mean, what's the point? Why do yeah. it? On the other hand, I mean, do you guys both find, I find this, if I'm going to read a book anyway, then I never read any of the company, accompanying material. You know, I kind of feel like yeah, I don't want true. to know. Like, if yeah. I'm going to read it, it's like, it's just like, if I've decided to watch a movie, I'm not going to watch the trailers. Because I might as well get the stuff that's yeah, in the trailer in the movie. You know. Okay, we should probably you know, get into the, the, the meat of the book. No, uh, I'm sorry, that was just my own, that's yeah. my own bugbear. I apologise, I didn't mean to derail. No, no, it's fine. No, anyway, what I, that say, is, I, I listened yeah. to a discussion with Madeline Ashby about writing this book. And, I mean, she described Hua as a cross between Veronica Mars and the Terminator, which... <laughs> Very nice. Which I thought was a nice elevator pitch. And she talked about how it was heavily influenced by Korean dramas and her experience with anime and all sorts of other things, as well as her, her experience as a futurist. The thing that immediately grabbed me was, I mean, the book starts off like a freight train. I mean, Hua, who is this young woman who suffers from a birth defect, I forget the name of the condition, which is affected... Sturge Weber. Sturge, Sturge Weber. Right, which yeah. means that she has certainly, and I was never a hundred percent clear on this. She certainly has a port wine stain down one side of her body and some other disfiguration. Yeah, Sturge Weber has a number of different uh, ways it affects the body. Um, yeah, but anyway, it could be because yeah, it, it can cause blindness and things like that. But the the main the main the obvious thing about it because I, I have to be oh, no, I don't know this I've researched it because of the book which you know is always a good thing is that that stain that runs either on the face or on the, across the whole body itself. And usually one side. Yeah. yeah. And she, you know, because of this, uh, she, you know, not only she said this condition, she's from a very poor background. Her mother is a sex worker, a former singer. Her mother, uh, has obviously felt very negatively towards her daughter as she was growing up and treated her very poorly, hasn't taken advantage of, if she could, could have afforded to, the kind of things that could have helped her daughter and rather has seemed to blame her for it. She said this very rough upbringing before she's even become this but this sort of ninja bodyguard for the Canadian Sex Workers Union. You know, it, it makes for a really interesting character. I mean, how did you guys feel about Hua? James? Oh, I thought she's a terrific character. I mean, I look, the thing I liked about all three of Ashby's books, and particularly, I must say, the, in the first of the robot books, is that there is a really interesting combination of a... I guess a an extremely um, kind of technical mind with you know a, a really kind of sympathetic, empathetic sense of the characters. You know, you like people in her books. You know, and her world's like that. I mean, she's a she's a terrific character. She's very damaged, but she's very interesting. Yeah, I agree. Just. To- just immediately sympathetic, even though she's not necessarily sympathetic in, in nature, uh, because she's, she can be quite violent. And I mean, she's a bodyguard, as you said. And it's, uh, you know, I just, throughout the novel, if there's one thread that works beautifully, it is the fact that we're, we're reminded, not constantly, it's not shoved in our face, but we're reminded that, um, she does have this, uh, this disability and that, um, and one of the things that I loved is that she, would well, she would fix herself in quote marks, and I'm, I suppose you have to be more careful than I am with the words. But that she can't afford it, and there's this constant push and pull about 
how people saying, well, you know, how brave of you that in this world where everyone has uh, some sort of modification or or whatever that you're you're essentially, you know, um, organic, purely organic, even with your disability. And she's saying, well, actually, if I had, had cash like all of you guys, I might have done something about it. I'm not sure I would today, but you know, it, this is this is more of a. a uh, an issue of circumstance and then social economic circumstance rather than anything else. So that to me is interesting because it, it, often these these things are, are dealt with like, no, it's it, it's the character themselves separating themselves out from the community because they see themselves as different so they want to, but she's, and there's an element of that with Hua, but she's also saying, well, no, you, I haven't had access to the treatments you've had. You're the ones in the privileged position, not me. That's why I am the way I am. And yes, it, it dogs me all the time, this. I just found that really interesting. And that made her extremely sympathetic as a result, even though she is quite a violent person in many ways and can be quite off-putting in the way she treats other people. I suppose emotionally there's something very attractive, uh, if that's the right word, about a character who is overcoming misfortune and difficult circumstance. And here's Hua, who plainly has no affection for herself, right? Virtually none at all. And she has... Yeah, a mother who has, if I read it correctly in the book, physically abused her and has been yeah. this very difficult circumstance. She plainly struggles to believe that she's worthy of affection, of connection with other people. But weirdly, her disability, her, her condition, is what allows her to function the way she does. Because the one thing that you immediately get from, you know, from, from these books is that, or from the story, is that Everybody's so augmented that the world is filtered through uh, augmented vision. There are overlays or whatever else. And so because of her disability, none of the augmented systems know how to process her. So people almost literally can't physically see her. That you know, The scanning systems can't scan her face so she can walk through security to some degree. Uh, people never know what to make of her. They're always looking away because of that. And it gives her all, a, 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 almost a perversely a free space to move through through the world she's in yeah yeah absolutely and uh, and just to skip a bit but her relationship with daniel who is the sort of uh i don't know what is he the bodyguard or so head of security of, of the lynch organization that that relationship in in many other books and this is again one of the things i loved about this novel um in many other books there's there's this antagonistic relationship it's Often, one you know this 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 antagonistic relationship that ultimately ends up in love or, or sex or whatever. In this, while while there is a bit of you know antagonism, this is really funny relationship that they have. It's really witty and funny, and lots of jokes, and and, and they pick on each other, but in in a way that's a that's immediately friendly, not not immediately, but get becomes quite friendly. And so when you know spoilers, when they do get together. At the end, it feels earned, unlike so many other books that uh, the book that just won the Locus Award for best novel, uh, best fantasy novel. That relationship, uh, sorry, I didn't. The Fran, well, is a Fran, not Fran, well, um, The Uprooted. Yeah, I didn't see. Oh, that's a relationship that I never thought was earned in that particular book. And I know we're not reviewing that book for this podcast, but just as a, a motive, but there's many other examples. Yeah. To me, it felt earned. I really, really enjoyed that aspect as well of the book, which well, again filters back into Hua as a character. Well, to give listeners a little bit of sort of the, the plot connection, I mean, we meet Hua, she's on a, she's working, she's... The, by the way, these are listeners who have read the book, Jonathan. Oh, I know, I know, but still. There's <laughs> Hua, she's been, she's, you know, she has 
been uh, working with, 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 with a sex worker who's with a client. She's there to protect her. One of her friends, her brother's been killed when, when a rig blew up a couple of years earlier. She has another friend, a friend who's killed, and then there's a series of, of, of friends who are killed through, of her friends through the novel. And that, in fact, leads to one rather surprising set of outcomes later in the book, because it appears as though it all centers around the lynches. I mean, there's Hua, she's working, she's hired by the lynch company to defend uh, Joel, the youngest lynch. She works for or under Daniel, whatever his name was, who's the, as you say, the head of security, and a very, very augmented artificial physical person who appears to have very protective feelings towards her for, for some reason, and then we fly off into the future uh, of, of the story. Um, did you, What did you guys think about the serial killer kind of narrative in this? James? I'll let, I'll let James go for that one. <laughs> Thanks. Um, look, my issue with it was that I didn't... I mean, you've got multiple kind of strands happening at once, and... I mean, first of all, I, I'm not clear that they ever quite come together in a satisfying way, which is a bit of a problem. But uh, also the whole the whole serial killer thing just seemed very, you know, it, it was simultaneously that it was, you know, it's just a fairly standard kind of routine in this kind of book. You know, the people around you are dying one by one. You know, this is clearly more is going on here than you think is going on here. But... No one seemed to actually care that all these people were being killed. I mean, that was what I found really strange. There was something very odd about... Do you know what I mean? It was kind of taking place as if it was in a vacuum. You know, people keep dying in a really weird way, but no one seemed would to that be because of the Would that be because of the compartmentalised nature of Company Town? Because it is broken up into five towers and... Look, I, guess sense- that, I guess that's the explanation. I just found... It, it, it kept feeling to me like it was this thing that was happening off to one side of the part of the narrative that she was actually interested in, which was the stuff with Daniel, Joel, and Hua, you know, which, you know, because all the bits, particularly with Daniel and Joel, are so alive and fun. And then you've got this kind of weird thing where she goes back to visit her friends and they die. And do, do you know what I mean? Like, it, yeah, yeah, oh, no, I agree. It, 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 yeah, the bits are quite neat together, you know, which is a bit, a bit frustrating, really. I mean, I don't want to overstate that because I did, I mean, you know, I actually enjoyed it very much. But it felt to me like though the bits never quite come together. You know, there's the, the, all the stuff with the singularity, which never felt to me like it quite paid itself out. You know, how are they travelling from the future to influence the past? Do you know what I mean? Like the bits never quite seem to to come together. I mean, I, I guess they do in a, in a simplistic, yes, they all get explained kind of way. But they never feel satisfyingly pulled together. Does that make sense? No, it's my, no, it makes perfect sense. It's my problem with the book as well. All the stuff around the singularity is, it feels so con- inconsequential for a good chunk of the novel and then literally becomes the big thing in the novel that basically, mm-hmm. and again, this is the major spoiler, our murderer is from the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially. And, and is trying to create, you know, a, a, a specific timeline. And none of that is, and it's also murky, and why it's then connected to Jack the Ripper specifically, which always shits me. I, I, Jack the Ripper is a, because um, Hua 
goes into the, this library to, to look at how serial killers function and Jack the Ripper is used as an example and it's an immersive experience so she actually is there in Whitechapel seeing the, the bodies and how, how the Ripper killed and the surgical nature of it all and bloody bloody blah, blah, blah. But uh, Jack the Ripper gets used too often in genre fiction and, and I think Ashby more or less gets away with it because it's not the murder turns out to be Jack the Ripper because that's been done a few times. I'm looking at you, Babylon 5, and fuck knows how many other TV shows where Jack the Ripper somehow turns out to be the murderer. Um, but it, So it's not that, but um, it, it still feels like, oh, do we have to go back to Jack the Ripper every time serial killers are... Are, are, are looked at in a book, you know, especially in genre. Why? What's the fascinating? I know Jack the Ripper in and of itself is fascinating, but can't we do something different, please? I don't know. I, maybe you guys didn't have the same cringe around Jack not, the Ripper. Not especially. I'm not particularly sensitised to the Jack the Ripper stuff. I was more interested in seeing how she could integrate it, you know, smoothly into where the story was going and what she was trying to achieve, because it didn't always make itself clear to me when I was re re reading the book. I was kind of going, okay, yes, and you're both right. There doesn't appear to be the degree of consequence that extremely graphic murders would have. I'm somewhat more sold, by the way, on the idea that because of who the people were who were being killed, there was less attention paid to it. You know, they were from the lower classes, they were economically disadvantaged, they were prostitutes, all this sort of thing. kind of thing that's Cla classically easy to sort of overlook in the broader society, but still it is a sealed environment company town, so you'd think there would be greater ramification than we saw. Um, yeah, I don't know, I mean, I did wonder, did, did, do either of you guys watch, watch Person of Interest? No, uh, but because you mention it so often, I've now trying to track okay. down it. I, I, now, I, know, I know I'm I, six years behind. Yeah, no, no, don't worry, I now can't make the point I was going to make. Okay. What did you think about the idea that, in, a, in effect, this story, because of multiple universes, whatever else, is repeated iterations of the same story to try and find an outcome whereby Hua won? You know, in that back portion of the novel, the antagonist, the serial killer that she meets, whatever his name was, I forget what it was, uh, he basically says, in all these other versions of the universes, you failed. You died, you die every time, that's how it goes. And you're going to fail this time because you always do. And Joel goes on to do this and we go out into the universe and that's the future of the Lynch Company because it's all about the future of the Lynch Company. There seems to be this mechanism that I almost don't quite understand that they keep looking for the iteration where she failed, where she wins. I mean, this is the one iteration. What did you guys think about that stuff? Well, it didn't make much sense to me. That's what I... Well, so I'll let James talk, because I've spoken enough. Uh, that is an interesting interpretation of it. Um, I, I'm i not quite sure what I think about that. It's it's interesting. Um, uh, I mean, I found all of the time travel stuff very murky, to be honest. I mean, that, that was kind of a problem that I didn't... You know, it's funny, I, particularly at the beginning, I found myself reminded quite powerfully of the peripheral, the Gibson novel from a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, and I think there's a lot of resonances between Ashby's work and Gibson's work anyway. But, you know, as soon as we had this kind of, well, people are coming from the future to influence the past story, I thought, well, look, this feels an awful lot like the peripheral, but you know, it's not a bad thing, it's an interesting thing. 
But what's interesting is that it makes really good sense in the peripheral. I felt in this, I never really understood how it was happening, what was happening. Do, do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, you know, I just felt confused at the end at some level. You know, I mean, no, the, confused, is, confused is too strong. Again, I felt unsatisfied, which is different. Well, you know, I felt James, with, the, with the peripheral, James, it is the point of the story. That is the whole raison d'etre. In this, other than, see, Lynch mentions early on, the elder Lynch mentions to while early on, I think the murderer is from is is part you know is is the is the singularity. It's coming. He's coming from he she it is coming far from the future. And we sort of because we're it's all filtered through Hua this story. It, we sort of take it as well. That's just the ravings of a lunatic. But yeah. still, the, we're getting these threats coming through. So there's something happening, but it's not some future villain. And it's treated like that until it turns out to be true. And it, that happens so late in the piece. And it's someone from the school. That's the other thing. So she's attending school uh, because she's the bodyguard of. Uh, of, of uh, sorry, what was he? What was his name? Julian? Is that right? The the the, the son. Anyway, no, uh, Joel. Joel. Sorry, sorry. Apologies. So she's at, it's sort of she's both his bodyguard at the school, but still in. The, she's learning in the school because she dropped out at a younger age, and she feels this is an opportunity to actually get a degree and all this sort of stuff. Just one other element to the plot, and so th- there's some. Slightly weird guy, one of the teachers is a bit weird, and that again is uh, sort of a, a half remark which then has to, becomes extremely important, but not in a way that, you, as you say, James, that's satisfying. I mean, also all this stuff around the generation ship, there's so much in this book. I, I'm, it's only 80,000 words because mm. there's all this stuff around that, that Joel's working on a, on how, how would you build a, a generation ship, which actually isn't just a pet project, it's pivotal to the plot. Do you and think to the whole singularity thing. Do you think there's just too much in the book? Well, yes, because I think the actual interesting bit, which is the connection between Hua, uh, um, Daniel, and, and, and Lynch as the boss, and his plan for immortality, which, by the way, is another thread, um, is that that core is interesting. That you know, How is this man going to live forever, and how is he going to use his own son as a means to do that and use Daniel as a means to do that? That, to me, made perfect sense within the narrative of the book and felt like... There was the heart and soul of the novel, and all this other stuff, which unfortunately, which is in the periphery for so much of it, and then becomes the be all and end all. Uh, yeah. it, it just it, it, uns- it yeah it didn't feel satisfying ultimately. See, I, I've got to say that there's a very precise moment where this book lost me, if you like, and it's really clear. There's a scene about eighty five percent of the way into the book, and it's it's a a, a major climax scene where. Uh, the elder Lynch and basically announces, letting everybody know that he's going to take over Daniel's body, use him as a sleeve, download into Daniel's body effectively, killing Daniel, and then, you know, guard his son Joel into the future, taking, you know, care of the company, uh, in a, you know, as, as an immortal going off into the stars or whatever it might be, right? And Hua kills him, right? She, she, she beats him to death. Because she's lovely, and then suddenly one of this other character is gutted, hanging from the ceiling like crepe paper or something, and it doesn't make sense. And then suddenly, like we we there's this sudden body, like this person has been eviscerated, but we don't know why, and there's no link to it. And then we get a scene change, and it's a period of time later, and she's packing up and helping her mother move out of her home. And that's yeah, that's right. It just just was all confused. And then we suddenly try to get to the resolution of like, okay, who survived? Which version of Joel is there? And you've got this guy from the, the far future comes in trying to kill Hua 
so that she will have some impact emotionally on Joel, so he will continue to drive the company out to the stars and stuff. And it just, yeah, I don't know. And I also, there's one other thing which bothered me, and I really want to know from both of you your opinion on this and whether you think I've misread it or put too much emphasis on it. It bothered me that we were introduced to Hua, that we were shown her medical condition and the impact that it had on her, on her emotionally, and that irrespective of all of that, Daniel, who tells us quite clearly that he saw her for who she was and how she was and fell in love with her anyway, that when she wakes up at the end of the book, that physically changed her and wiped it all away. And she's, it's like, it's almost like she, she had to become normal, cleaned up, whatever, to be the character who gets to fall in love and live happily ever after. That really bothered me. No, look, I thought the same thing. I think, though, that the argument would be that, of course, the thing that she had, um, it wasn't just about being disfigured. She was also sick and it was killing her, mm. you know, so it needed to be fixed up. But, yes, there is a level at which you kind of get this sort of wish fulfilment at the end, but it's a bit uncomfortable given that so much of the rest of the book has been about, you know, her preparedness to accept who she was at some level, even that's a fairly ambivalent process for her. But, no, no, I, 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 I don't know that that bothered me as such, but I, I certainly looked at it and wondered about that reading of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so um, I, I didn't get her really wishing for, that it was her wish to be fulfilled, if you know. And they didn't establish to, to me. Oh, no, but, she, but earlier on she touches the yeah. globe, yeah. which sort of projects out this, this idea of it. And, again, she does say that if she had money, you know, if she was in a better socioeconomic state, she might have, well, she would have probably fixed herself. Uh, and, and this is as much an illness as anything, you know, it's a, it's a, and yeah. look, but yeah, but, but again, you, your reading isn't entirely, um, crazy, if that's what you're asking. Like, it does, it does, it doesn't ring, it rings false, it does. But then the whole last third. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think you could have nailed it down if you'd made it clearer that, her being transformed, even though it's still what gets her to living happily ever after and being quote-unquote... It's like it undercuts the whole Daniel loving her for who she is to me. But that said, if it had been cast more clearly as an inevitable consequence of healing her, I would have felt more comfortable about it. Yeah, fair point. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know more to say that. I, yeah. I think okay, you're right. No, I think you would just sort of mention it. That's all. Just my mind. <laughs> would it be worth? I mean, I, I look. I, I think we all have frustrations with the last third. I think it might be worth talking a bit more about the things that. I mean, I think the first two thirds of the book are very, very good. Yeah. You know, and it might be worth talking about some of those things. I feel like we've we've become very focused on a couple of things we didn't like about the end. But I mean, there's so many things to like in the book. Sure, yeah. I mean, this is a funny book for a start, I thought. There's a lot of humor in the book. There's a lot of life in the book. The society on the, uh, on, on the company town is really interesting and multi-layered and engaging. There's the madam character who she interacts with, who's some kind of a protector mentor, who's really great. Her mother is comically vile, almost. Oh, she's monstrous. Monstrous. <laughs> Fantastic monstrous. character. She is. She's, she is, in fact, in many ways worse than the serial killer, 
right? I mean, yeah, because here she, I mean, she's burnt her 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 daughter's born born with a disability. She plainly resents her and hates her because she's disfigured. She's disfigured her further. There's some kind of burn burning accident or something. Her mother's burnt her, you know. And there's this kid who somehow managed to come up as not being, in fact, a deranged serial killer herself. And when you first meet her, I mean, like the opening is so good in many ways, I think, you know, because you, you meet Hua, there she is, she's at work, and she's smart, and she's sassy, and she's got attitude and strength, and she's great character. And it just goes, it takes off like a freight train from there. It's so engaging and so um, immersive in that first half to three quarters that it's just really terrific stuff. Mm. I mean, one of the other things I like about it, and I think all the futurian word is not coming to me, um, futurist, that's the word I'm grasping for, stuff is terrific, I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but there's one kind of cultural specificity to it, because, I mean, you know, I'm pretty sure she's a Canadian, and, it, you know, there's the bit where she has to go and buy a bag of chips with vinegar. You know, so there's all these kind of little things that are about, you know, it, it's not a kind of mainstream American future. You know, it's, it's she's, one that's she's, one step she's from California, but, but moved to uh, Canada about 10 years ago. Who are you talking about? Ashby? Ashby? Ashby or the character? Ashby. I'm talking about Ashby. Yeah. I'm talking about Ashby. And I thought all of that was great. I thought the um the guy that she finds is in the invisibility suit is an amazing kind of moment where she, she finds the guy and pulls yeah. his hood off. You know, and that's all kind of amazing. The fight with the the fight with the invisible man. Um, but I mean, all the technological stuff is fascinating. There's a wonderful moment where she's talking to one of the, um, one of the people she goes to talk to and she's trying to track down the killer. And he's talking about having unlicensed augments in your body. You know, why you wouldn't have pirate implants, which is that basically, you know, every time you go to the toilet, every time you walk into a shop, Changing room. Every time you, yeah, you know, every time you go anywhere, they do kind of random scans. And if they pick up that you're using unlicensed software, you get hit with a huge fine. You know, so it's kind of wonderful, you know, sense of the way that technology, technology not just becomes pervasive, but becomes commercialized, which I thought was really, really fascinating. I agree. I mean, the way it's, oh, right. is it, is it, is this where we're headed in the real world? Is this where we're headed? This this uh, move away from the biological, or more the point, the meshing of of because because I know Jonathan, you often point out that that the futures that that hold us going out into space aren't realistic because just there isn't the money for it. You know, there's all sorts of engineering issues, whatever. But but this future, the one that, that Ashby points out, it's not, and she's not the only one who does it. I've read a couple of novels this year written by futurists that that that's, that point in, in a similar way. Although Ashby's is far more vibrant and interesting than what I've read in the past, but is this is it is this a possible future? Is this is this a way we, we, we are going? He says with an iPhone shoved up against his ear, which in a sense <laughs> is the beginning of that. I, I don't know. Well Google James Google patented tech, Google patented technology about two months ago where they can take the lens of your eye, suck out the stuff that's inside it, and then squirt in a gel into which you could put you know, computers and things. So you can actually call up, potentially, kind of displays within your eyes. So you could see what was, um, what was, uh, in your vision. So I mean, I mean, that clearly the stuff has been put in place for that kind of augmentation. But 
I, I was actually watching someone using a drone the other day, and I just that morning watched a video from Boston Robotics, which was with that weird dog that was, which was walking around in um in um in that person's house, washing their dishes and things, which was doing the rounds yeah. during the week. And I was actually thinking about robot, that kind of robot technology, which is that you know drones have gone from being something that didn't exist to being a technology that is totally pervasive in the space of about five to ten years. And there's clearly a kind of criticality these these technologies hit where they become kind of cheap enough, easy enough, and useful enough, and they spread really fast. I was looking at the robots and thinking, I bet you anything that these are going to do the same thing, that in ten years or fifteen years, quite suddenly, robots will be everywhere. Do you know what I mean? And there'll be this sudden advancement in their, in their thing driven by the fact they could do it. So I mean, it may well be that the implants will do the same thing. You know, we look at them at the moment and go, God, why would you do it? It'd be so expensive, it'd be so difficult, they might malfunction. But, you know, you can suddenly do it. Perhaps they will spread like crazy. Or perhaps it's like generation chips and you can't do it. I don't know. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit skeptical about things that are, you know, like loaded into, inserted surgically into your body. I mean, even allowing that, yes, they also have had, uh, things patented where you put screens just onto the layer of the dermis on your arm. So you can display clocks, watches, heart rates, all that kind of thing, onto your skin, on your arm, you know, and that exists. So obviously, there's there's an interest in becoming more physically invasive, but certainly as an as a physically augmented thing. I mean, I was watching a, fr- a friend of mine post a photo where he's playing Oculus Rift, so he's got that the whole helmet on, and he's seeing the world in a different projected three dimensional way. Um, I totally c- can see non-surgically added things doing the kind of thing that you see in this book. I think there's a lot... I mean, some of the stuff's just sketched on. It's plainly a climate change inundated world. There's... Even though she doesn't really talk about it in any direct way. There's all kinds of interesting speculation about the changes to society. There's all kinds of things about... As you say, about augmentation. And then, of course, the 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 pressure and the thing that happens with Hua herself, where... um, if you're not augmented, you're not fully in society, which then, of course, raises the issue of the, the cost of implants and how you get them and ha- how you become disenfranchised from the modern world, as actually it happens te- technologically today based around money, where you basically, if you can't afford all of your additional technical toys and connections and all that, you don't get to be part of all of the modern, modern society. Yeah, true. You know, so that's all built into this. Uh, and there are things like the change, obviously, to attitudes to some sort of things. You know, sort of, there's, you know, there are prostitutes working on the on the rig that is Company Town, but they're organised, they're legal, they're uh, part of a union, all this kind of stuff. So it's 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 all restructured in kind of interesting ways, and it, there's a lot of dense speculation just peppered into it that makes it the kind of thing that you could probably re. In fact, it'd be, be quite, probably quite interesting to reread it and. Unpack how it all comes apart because there's so much in there. It's a really fascinating book. Yeah, and what was interesting is that the company town seemed like a livable place. It wasn't just some dystopian thing where everyone is exists. I mean, there is definitely a class structure. There are people who can't afford and people who can. That's clear, depending on which tower you live in and all that sort of stuff. But it seemed, even at its worst, it seemed as a livable environment. Um. With a where thing because it's often uh, especially the term company town has in and of itself 
quite a bit of baggage around indentured slavery or you know servitude or whatever you want to call it and yet this place is a place where look i don't know if i'd want to live there myself but um it, it seems to function as a as a place that that's livable that's that's what i'm yeah that's what i'm getting at and yeah it's it, it does it is uh, up to the it's risk the risk of it is the whims of different corporations taking it over and you know therefore changing the way the place works but ultimately i like the fact that it wasn't just a while she did focus on the class aspect it wasn't just this sort of yeah. grim dim you know everyone it's 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 uh almost cannibalistic in, in in its way that there is a there is a, a a system of society there that more or less works well yeah i mean this is science fiction about work this is science fiction about industry you know i mean someone said that science fiction is one of the few literatures that are about work and that's really what this is it's about the, the economic future we're going to see I'll tell you one thing that really really impressed me and i'd be curious to know whether how it struck you too in the interview that I listened to, or the discussion I listened to with Ashby, she was saying how much she hates exposition, clumsy exposition. Um, and she puts an awful lot of stuff. We're talking about all this sort of dense world building and futurism and stuff. And yet the actual yeah. unfolding of that is really clean and straightforward and not weighed down with exposition. I'm really kind of impressed with how she handled that. What did you guys think? James? Oh, I think all that stuff's very agile in this book. I think she's always very agile about that stuff. Um, and, you know, it's done very cleanly. It's done very persuasively. And it's done, as you say, without a lot of exposition, which is always very difficult to do. Um, and, you know, she, look, it feels, it feels believable, which is, which is always, which is always incredibly interesting. I mean, I think one of the things that's fascinating about her as a writer, and I'm, I'm a really big fan of the two robot books, um, is that what she managed to do with them was to give you this world that felt kind of emotionally real, but was embedded in a, a world which was, had been really altered in very deep ways by technology. And I actually think that's quite difficult. And it goes back to the things you were both talking about before about these things, talk about work, because that's actually an activity that's central to most people's lives and is often not represented in fiction. You know, and back to a whole series of questions about, you know, the, the technology. Because the technology is, she's interested in the way technology embeds its way in, into people's lives and into their emotional lives and how it kind of shapes them rather than in the technology as a gadget, as a thing. Yeah. You know, so there's a very kind of human level to it and you really see it particularly in BN there's all of this great stuff with this you know you really care about these kind of sex robots that are running around you know you you care about all of these robots which have been objectified and hurt by human beings much more than you care about the humans <laughs> but again it's about this this desire to kind of sympathize I think often with with the oppressed and to find a way of coming at these things from a, a slightly different social perspective, which I think she does really, really effectively. Oh, sorry, I've wandered away from your question. I'll, I'll wander back. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. Because, I mean, one of the, whenever I read someone talking about futurism, and when they talk about exposition, I always think the same thing, because I'm a simple one-track mind kind of person. I think about the way that Stan Robinson talks about exposition and info dump and inserting into text and the kind of methods he uses to do that, and how he sees it as being one of the 
assets of science fiction rather than a, de- a negative. That it's something where, you know, sort of that world building, that ex- exploration, all that kind of thing is a value. What I see here, and this is how I would perhaps split the difference, is there's no techno fetishism. You know, there's no love of it for itself, and so we're going to look over all the gleaming details. It's kind of like the world yeah, changed this right. way. Let's talk about how people are affected. The world changed that way. Let's see how about people are affected. People are augmented. Hey, wow. Well, what happens to an unaugmented person in a future where uh, everybody else is augmented? How would they flourish and survive, or fail, or whatever else? And obviously, this book yeah. must. Sorry, Ian. Yeah. Yeah, well, no, 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 sorry, you finished, apologies. I was going to say, and obviously this book is some kind of a commentary against the Machine Dynasty uh, books, which are filled with artificial and augmented characters and don't have a Hua-type character in them, from what I understand. Yeah, not having read those books, but what I liked was that there was no uh, potted history uh, behind each technological technology, you know, charting its development over time, uh, which some of these books... I want to do and there's also because when we talk you know hatred for exposition it is the old cliched two characters talk explain the plot to each other even though they know exactly what's going on and it's really only for the service of the reader there's none of that here and in fact to the point where um she is expecting you the reader to orient yourself in her world and i like that and, and it's not difficult because it's an immediately engaging uh, a piece of fiction. And but there is that requirement that you orientate yourself, and and uh, that's uh, that's always a big tick for me. Well, I think one of the smart things she did was basically set it all in the locked room of New Arcadia, and maybe some of our ambivalence about the the back quarter of it, the back fifteen twenty percent, maybe is that that's when it breaks out into those multiple timelines and gets kind of odd. But when she's keeping within that closed community environment and looking at how that that fishbowl has changed in, in, in the future, that's when it's at its most fascinating and at its most effective, you know. I really like this. I really, really like chunks of this book so much. I'm really happy I read it. Yeah, I'm not upset either. And I, and I will go back at some point and read Ashby's other work. Oh, I recommend the other books very much. I mean, I liked it enormously as well. I mean, I kind of, I do think it kind of something goes wrong in that last quarter, which is a pity. Um, although, having said that, you know, it's kind of emotion emotionally satisfying at one level. It's just kind of frustrating at a, I guess, at a at a kind of intellectual level where you're trying to work out. You know how all the bits fit together, or something. It doesn't. It doesn't quite work. But I mean, that doesn't detract from the fact that the first, you know, the first two thirds or three quarters are fantastic and are really, really good. Yeah. You know, and and I wish, you know, I wish I read more books where I felt, you know, that the good bits were this good. If that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and again, and not to contradict what I've said, but there is a level of ambition in that last quarter where you can see at least. Well, that's how I saw it. That she's upping the ante and trying to do something that isn't is unexpected i think it's a little bit too unexpected that's the that's where it it doesn't wrong it didn't wrong foot me in a pleasing way but i I sort of admire that well admire sounds so patronizing but i like that there's an ambition there that that it's not a book that just fades off into the distance it it does have a a big bang of an ending even if you don't entirely (laughs) see how it all comes together uh so yeah i mean there's that too which again i it sounds a bit uh, lukewarm but uh yeah anyway 
But look, I, I have no regrets reading it. No. I, I, it's and you know, I know, know on your Facebook page, Chad, Jonathan, you you um, posted the first sentence of the book, which is immediately grabbing. But then, and and, and it's like that for the entire novel. Well. You know, last third aside, maybe, but it is like that. That is how it's written. It is a freight train, as you said, which I think is a very good description of it. Yeah, I, I think anybody. So yes, I, I do recommend it in that yeah, sense. Me too. Um, a, a, another fine addition to our our, our library shelf of 2016. Now, I guess it's probably a good time, having discussed the book, and I don't have a lot else to, to more to say about. It. Do either of you? No. Okay, James. No. Yeah. No, I okay. think that's a good point too. Okay. Well then just quickly, next month we will return. I'm off to, you know, sort of to Italy for a little while and I'll probably read on the plane and I will probably be reading Well, I think isn't is the next book am I right that we're going to talk about The Sudden Appearance of Hope by Claire North? No, that no, I thought we said Central Station. Ah, so so ne- next month we will come back and we'll talk about Levitidhar's Central Station, and yeah. then the month after that, we'll talk about the sudden appearance of Hope by Claire North. Oh, I do know we made that. Uh, have we see, I love how we do the housekeeping on the podcast. Well, I love how we do the the, the, the housekeeping here. But uh, I yes, I'm I'm keen to read it. So Are that's, you happy that with was that smart. Is that a plan or sure? Sure. Or maybe we'll talk about that more off air. We'll just sort of say that we will be back with uh, with Levi Tidhar's uh, uh, Central Station is his short story collection slash novel that came out from Tachyon back in, I think, May, uh, and brought together a whole bunch of his short stories into a connective, uh, collective narrative about a, well, I guess you'd call it, what, a space station, a thingy station, a, a launching station thing. I've lost them on the inarticulate. In Tel Aviv. <laughs> which is great. I've read, I read the stories and I've, I've read the book. So I'd be interested to talk about that. A space port is the word you're looking for. Space port is the word I'm looking for. Thank you. Maybe I could, <laughs> you think there's a way I could edit that out and make that look like I'm not a complete twit? Yeah, you're never going to edit it. Even if you wanted to edit it, you'd never edit it. Who knows? It's true. I mean, see, and having you flounder is amazing, Jonathan. Thank you it's very much. Fun. Can I tell you why I thought about the sudden appearance of hope? Because we've just seen, we just read a book about a girl that people, a lot of people couldn't see, and that's a book about a girl that people couldn't remember. See, nice little segue. Which is such a great, uh, yeah. It's a little segue. Yeah, no, very good. So So we'll see anyway. But we we may talk about that one. We'll see. Life's full of changes. Along the way, I mean, by by the time we get to that one, I'll have been to Kansas City for for Worldcon. But until then, maybe we'll wind up. I'll say thank you to you both for taking some time out of your busy days to talk about books, and you know we hope that listeners have enjoyed it. What do you guys? How about you guys? Yeah, it's been it's been once again a pleasure. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> I had fun. 